Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. Hello, everybody. Uh, Welcome to Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo. Bobo is not here today, so you're stuck with just me. Bobo is working on a production right now, as uh, you all know, because we talk about it every week in Southern Oregon. And apparently this week I called him and I was excited about the guest we had. I said, hey, we have this guy for a certain time and and he cannot make it today, basically. He is driving across California with a truck full of production gear, um, delivering it to here and there and the foothills of the Sierras and down to LA. And the long, long story short, he cannot make it today. So you're stuck with just me. And of course, our, our guest, which we'll get to in just a moment. Um, around this time of the podcast, I usually ask Bobo what he's been up to and what he's doing. And he's been telling, he, he would usually say, oh, oh yeah, production stuff. And then I would go back and tell what's happening at the museum. So I'm going to do that for you now. It has been a very interesting week, a week and a half actually here at the North American Bigfoot Center. Um, I was in uh, Kentucky for CryptidCon a week and a half ago, and I got to spend another night out afterwards at a at a farm where the woman who had who has lived there for about a, week, a year and a half now has seen Sasquatches apparently three or four times over this last year, and with all that stuff that goes with it, you know. Um, you know, finding footprints around and, and sounds outside the house that are unidentifiable. Apparently, one of her uh, uh, calves, one of her young cows, has, was killed by something um, that twisted its neck around, which is very unusual, as you know, as most Bigfooters out there would know that a Sasquatch mayor, we don't know if a Sasquatch did it, but maybe, maybe it did. I don't really know. Uh, but so there's all this going on, and I had the opportunity to spend the night out there. And I'll tell you, um, up until that point, I think the coldest I've ever been was on the Kansas episode of Finding Bigfoot. But Kentucky took the cake. Kentucky took the ice cream cake. It was so cold. It was astonishing. Um, the, the number on our thermometers said 18 degrees Fahrenheit. But, of course, it felt infinitely colder than that. Um, but we did find some footprints because uh, th- the woman that turned out saw one on Saturday – um, and I was there on Monday, and uh, she showed us where it ran. And then I went up the hill, um, and I located a, tr- a, a track line. I mean, they, they weren't like big, clear tracks or anything like that, but you can definitely see where an animal had been moving through the brush. I'm not a great tracker, but I'm a decent tracker. I'm a hobbyist or so, um, but I could definitely see where things um, were moving through there. Um, I smelled something very peculiar, of course, which I thought was interesting. Actually, I hadn't smelled that for many, many years. Um and there were several areas where an impression was in the ground, mostly toe scrapes, but all five toes were visible. 
Um, Tom Shea was out there with me, so I, of course, cast that. And um, due to the weather, I was unable to pull the footprint cast until, well, Tom Shea had to go back later and pull it because I had a plane to catch and I couldn't stick around. And the cold, damp conditions um, made the plaster not set up in time. Um, I think the plaster took over three and a half hours to set up, according to Tom. Um, but I only had about an hour or so to wait. So I'm kind of waiting to see what happened with that cast. Tom's going to ship it to me at some point. And then, of course, I get home and less than a week later, I go out to check our long duration recording unit that we have at a place. Um, all of all of my museum members um, at the North American Bigfoot Center would, of course, recognize the name Easter Island. That is a nickname for a place uh, that we've been working for a while. Um, there's another researcher who has been working the same area since the late 90s, and he has cast a number of interesting footprint casts out of the area. Um, so now we're looking at the same area. We found footprints there last uh, February. And um, and this guy, we, we met a guy, a witness, who lives not far from there. And he, he had seen a Sasquatch on his neighbor's property this past uh, January, I believe. And he had seen, um, he had two road crossings over the last several years, uh, just a few miles from his house. So this gentleman has been kind enough to allow us to put a long duration recording unit on the property. The long duration recording unit was donated by uh, the North Kentucky Bigfoot Research Group. Um, They had put these things together, uh, specifically uh, Dusty Ruth. Uh, There's a gentleman who gave it to us and we're deploying it out there. It can record up to three to four weeks at a time. Um, we schedule the recordings to be 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. every day. And um, poor Connor, um, my uh, Padawan and sidekick here at the North American Bigfoot Center, has to go through all the recordings when I bring it back to him. Um, so we went out there to change out the batteries and change out the SD cards. Um, and then on a whim, um, Keith, a friend of mine, and I decided to go out to the area of Easter Island and just go walk some roads just to see what's going on, see where the snow line is, see if there's any traffic out there, that kind of thing. And we stumbled across the footprint, got very, very lucky. Uh, it doesn't happen in every day. It doesn't even happen every month. It happens maybe two or three times a year at the most, at the very most, if you're really doing well. And we stumbled across a footprint in the ground. Four out of five uh, toes were visible. No one knew we were going there. We didn't know we were going to be there. Um, there was uh, only one print because of ATV traffic, apparently. I think the ATVs uh, decimated the other stuff that was probably in the ruts of the road. Um, we cast the print. It is now drying downstairs. Well, curing downstairs. It's already dry, but it takes about a week or two for all the for the plaster to really cure and set up. So it's curing downstairs at the NABC. So if you happen to come by the shop, ask Connor or me or whoever's working, Nico perhaps, um, ask us, and we'll be happy to show you what we have and what we found. Um, question is now, is it the same individual that uh, Connor and Keith found last February, just a few hundred yards down the very same road? Um Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We don't know yet. But that's what's been going on with the North American Bigfoot Center the last couple of weeks um, since last time we did a podcast. Um, and with that, I think we should jump into the guests because I want to give our guests as much time as possible. I am very excited to have a conversation with this gentleman. Um, I've, I, I first picked up on this gentleman on Twitter. He has a very active Twitter account where he, uh, um, he he's really interested in dinosaurs. His name is Darren Nash. He's from the UK. He's a science writer and basically a paleozoologist. So anything extinct. Um, uh, if, if you would read his blog, he has a fantastic blog at, at tetzoo.com. It's basically a tetrapod zoology blog. And he also has a podcast associated with it that he does with a guy named John Conway. Now, tetrapod is a fancy pants word, of course. It means anything on four legs. 
but I don't know. It seems like uh, Darren might be fencing himself in a bit because I know he's into, um, you know, fish. I know he's into, um, you know, uh, cetaceans and that sort of thing, you know, whales and dolphins, which, you know, could be considered tetrapods in the fossil record, of course, uh, based on where they came from. But, um, Anyway, I want to give Darren as much time as possible. And Darren, Darren Nash, he's written a, a, a very skeptical uh, and critical, and I say critical, I mean critical thinking book about cryptozoology. Because being a scientist, of course he's interested in cryptozoology because new species are discovered all the time. Of course that uh, cryptozoology is an important component, but at the same time, being a legit scientist with a PhD um, and, and a, a well-known scientist at that, he's obviously and rightfully so very critical of what he sees out there in the cryptozoological community. And that's why I wanted to invite him on. He does fantastic essays that he publishes on Twitter and also his blog on things like Sea Monsters and Patterson-Gimlin film. I thought that thread was amazing. Um, and so anyway, enough of me blabbing. Let's listen to the, the man of the hour here, Darren Nash. Darren, thank you so much for willing, being willing to come on Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and usually Bobo. Yeah, thanks very much. What an intro. Um, yeah, bitterly disappointed that Bobo's not with us today, but uh, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Well, I'm sure you're not the only one who's bitterly disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get over it. Yeah, see, I'm just bitter. Not, you know, so it's one of those things. <laughs> so, so, Darren, I mean, I didn't say anything incorrect in my intro, right? Or anything you want to correct that I said? You didn't say anything incorrect. Um, the tetrapod thing, I mean, technically, yeah, you're absolutely right. Tetrapods, tetrapod means four with four feet. But uh, uh, tetrapoda is what we call a clade. That is just a group of living things where everything comes from the single, a single ancestor. So around about 400 and something million years ago, a fish with weird limbs crawled out of the water and gave rise to the tetrapods. So tetrapods are all the amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. But of course, the whole theme of evolution is things, you know, tinkering, modifying bits over time, of course. And so you can still be a tetrapod. You can still be in that group and have less than four limbs. So whales and snakes and any other, uh, you know, weird amphibians, reptiles, you know, mammals you can think of that don't have four limbs are still tetrapods. They're still in that group, tetrapoda, even though they're not air quotes tetrapods, even though they're not four-footed animals. So that's the thing I, I, I find myself explaining um, hmm. you know, again and again, but, uh, yeah, it's a interesting, um, thing. Well, I think that's an important thing to explain to at least to our audience, because yeah, we do have legitimate scientists who listen to this. I, I get emails from them occasionally, PhDs and masters and, and, you know, regular people with, you know, biological degrees, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, um, bachelor's degrees and bachelor's of science degrees and things like that. But, um, the vast majority of our audience, um, are perhaps science enthusiasts, with no real technical background. So I think any sort of clarification you can offer along those lines would always be helpful with anything that we talk about in the next hour or so. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's really obvious from uh, anything written, well, nearly everything written within the, the cryptozoological canon, you know, the, the majority of people uh, are at least very, very interested in uh, science and uh, you know keep up to date with things and see their own research their own findings their own ideas within a scientific context i mean i think you know you guys are a great example of this i think it's it's becoming increasingly well known that people that collect data pertaining to cryptozoological subjects you, you don't have to be 
qualified. You don't have to have you know spent years at university. You don't have to have written a thesis. If you are collecting data and then recording the data and talking about you know formulating hypotheses, explanations for the data, you are indulging in science. You you can call yourself a citizen science. You don't even have to use the term citizen science. I mean, you are doing science if you are collecting data and analysing it. Um, one important thing in cryptozoology, though, is we have so many people collecting data, but they're not exactly knowing how to publish it. And uh, I think we're in a really interesting time at the moment where, um, due to the you know the rise of new technologies that you can apply to, I mean, you know, you, one of your favourite subjects obviously would be things like a, you know alleged Sasquatch footprints. Everyone's collecting these measurements and these location, inf- uh, you know, points of points of data what do we actually do with that data we we mustn't just leave it sort of sat in people's files uh it's it's got to somehow be you know out there and available and uh, um i mean there's so many different tangents to this conversation i mean you know f- for a start you know just use just the existence of the internet and the fact we've now got a, uh, a connected community that can share data is well it just makes things fundamentally different from uh, how things were just a couple of decades ago. Let me say one more thing before I stop, and that is that, um, yeah, the the overlap between um, anything cryptozoological and the kind of serious, air quotes, mainstream scientific world, the, the overlap is extensive. So I'm a qualified working scientist. I publish technical research, um, but I spend a lot of my time thinking about, you know, air quotes monsters, you know, cryptids, a lot of time um, wondering what what we should actually do with this with all this information that exists. Um, like a lot of people, you know, I got interested in the field because I was always enthralled by the idea that that um, you know are there real animals at the bottom of these of these mysteries? Uh, whether that's true or not, whether it's you know more kind of a socio cultural thing than a real flesh and blood thing, I kind of think I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it's like whatever the answer to the phenomenon is, there is something worthy of study. And I find that to be increasingly well understood, increasingly appreciated. And I do feel that wherever wherever people fall on the spectrum in terms of, you know, the most sceptical to the most accept, accepting, you know, even the people that are on the far sceptical side of things, they are paying attention. They are listening. At least they might not be interacting and you might not know they're there, but they are listening to what is being said about Bigfoot, about lake monsters, about sea monsters, about Mothman, whatever, because there are phenomena here that are worthy of study. Don't ever think that, that scientific sceptical people aren't paying attention to this stuff i know i know i'm preaching to the choir as it were but um i always think this is this is worth bigging up you know oh no we have we have an, a congregation here that needs to hear this sort of thing and on, on one hand i've i'm 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 happy that uh the, the the people you're speaking about these skeptics and the scientists are listening to the conversations but yet on the other hand i'm horrified of what at, at what they're hearing um, be, be, well, no, I'm, 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 I'm becoming, I'm quickly becoming the curmudgeon of the Bigfoot community where I'm, you know, scolding the audience at conferences for not doing a good enough job. And then partly myself, because, you know, we all only see ourselves out in the world. And I, I know that I'm not doing a good enough job and I have so much to learn and I need to do better. And then I look around and say, oh my God, I'm doing better than these people though. Oh my God, everybody needs help somehow, you know? And, and, um, so, so along those lines. Oh, and be, be, before I ask the question, uh, um, and uh, you, you hit on something else, I want to briefly touch upon is like I'm astonished in a way that um, 
that that more scientists aren't looking into what's happening. And and now, mind you, of course, you you know about me enough to know that I think that Sasquatches are a flesh and blood hom- hominoid of some sort. You know, I, I think they're just a perfectly normal animal walking around. They're just very rare, etc. But even even if the anthropologists aren't interested in this, where are the sociologists? Where are the psychiatrists? You know, like, where are these people? And why aren't they looking at what's happening in the Bigfoot community, whether or not Sasquatches are real animals or not? Certainly, there's some really interesting sociological things happening here. Um, and certainly, um, if, if we're all just wrong and, and, and I mean, this shouldn't this draw the attention of people who are interested in mental illness or something like that? Certainly, there's enough here for 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 reams of uh, scientific journal articles to be written. It's always been astonishing to me that they're not paying more close attention than they are. But um, the, back to my original point. We all have so far to go in the Bigfoot community because, you know, I don't have a science degree. I have a degree in music of all things. I just love science. And I recognized a long time ago that just like astronomy, um, the professionals are busy doing stuff. So the amateurs make a lot of significant discoveries. And I, I, I see Sasquatch as being an arm of anthropology where the enthusiasts, the amateurs uh, like me, can make significant contributions, at least until the academics get involved. People like myself who are collecting data, who are collecting footprints, who are collecting sighting reports and whatever else, I know what I'm doing with it. Um, I'm trying to find patterns and trying to learn about how Sasquatches live and that sort of where do they go and why and trying to piece together that kind of puzzle. But what can you recommend that we can that we should be doing or doing better as a community of enthusiasts around the subject? Yeah, there's a there's a there's a lot to uh, to. I always struggle with these complicated subjects to know exactly where to where to plant the flag and to start you know start the conversation. Um, I think so. Maybe taking this back a little bit to something you said uh, yeah, um, just a moment ago. The um, I think that the field okay Bigfoot specifically cryptozoology more broadly definitely is stigmatized, and that is. That's the main reason why there aren't more people like seriously investigating it. I get asked all the time as someone who's known to, to have an interest in this field, is like is is it pseudoscience? Is it isn't it isn't it just a waste of time? I'm like, well, you just can't make a broad brush yes or no answer on that kind of question because if you again think of you know, are scientists interested in the question of Bigfoot? That's a that's a question. Where the the answer there is every conceivable shade of grey, as you know, you know from your friends and associates. It's on the one hand, you've got fully qualified uh, people who, you know, Jeff Meldrum's a good example of some uh, of someone who has his credentials in you know technical primatology, you know, functional morphology, paleontology. Uh, you know, he, he, someone who's got an established you know firm track record, and then has kind of gone on to like start publishing on Bigfoot you've got from that all the way up to people that are yeah like interested in it as a as a socio-cultural phenomenon um and then you and then of course you have got people who reject it outright I would say the general feeling in science and this is going to sound you know like unfair totally and it's not coming from me but it is going to sound unfair the general feeling from you know the sort of consensus opinion that's built in that's built up within science is that uh, it's not worthy of study because the only people that are doing it are you know sort of kidding themselves or uh you know dealing with like known uh 
nonsense, you know, faked evidence or whatever. That is not me saying that. I'm saying that's the kind of consensus. So the bottom line there is what compelling evidence is there that would that would convince skeptical scientists to say no, this isn't, uh, you know, something that that can be can be ignored because at uh, the moment the the evidence that is put forward in published literature on bigfoot you know the pg film uh farrenbach's uh, data on um you know uh for uh, dis- statistical, statistical, stuff, right? statistical yeah. stuff yeah uh claims of um hairs i mean obviously you know the uh, the um oh, i've forgotten her name the um the, the study on the alleged uh, sasquatch genome oh that um, well we can yeah. we can put that to bed we had well, a, um, yeah you know that i know that but yeah. that didn't do the field any favors because of course no. that got that got a huge amount of um it's like wow is this is this for real is this is it true have they fought you know holy grail have they finally is bigfoot finally going to come in from the cold and then it's like no it turned out to be you know a, a a pretty embarrassing study with with some significant flaws. So you're st- what I'm getting at there is you're still kind of at stage one in terms of actually convincing skeptical scientists that is there a thing that's worthy of of study here. I think that is still the big problem. That like as as I I totally get that that's frustrating. I totally get that is not consistent with the body of evidence that does actually exist. But that is still the the, the case we're at. We don't have this absolutely compelling you know like set of I don't know something, something like something skeletal, or you know, like a bit of a dead body, or a compelling DNA profile, or something like that. So you, you've yeah. still got that. And, and um, to latch on to something else I mentioned in passing, the um, the the field being kind of you know spoilt for many scientists is now. Of course, I think the biggest problem we have in cryptozoology in general today is specifically relevant to Bigfoot more than anything else, is the woo. It really is the woo. Oh, I mean, yeah. like, I know exactly what your position is, um, but I, I'm i I'm fairly familiar with, you know, the general thinking in sort of, you know, Bigfoot research today. There's various other famous Sasquatch-themed podcasts I listen to. I know, like, what other people are saying ab- about Bigfoot, you know, including some 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 very well-known, you know, names in, in the community. They are specifically saying stuff that takes it outside of science, latch- attaches it to things to do with, well, well it's, it's to, to use the politest term possible, it is pseudoscience. You're talking about a, an attachment to, like, mythological ideas about, you know, um whether it's an interdimensional entity, whether it has a link with orbs, uh, whether yeah, it's yeah. connected to, you know, all, that's all that why I'm stuff. horrified that qualified people are listening <laughs> by the way. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so that, that is a problem. And I don't know how we're going to get around that because that isn't going away. If anything, that is probably becoming, you know, a big, a bigger, you know, a bigger view in, in the field, if anything, for whatever reason that is, I kind of think that that's actually built out of frustration. I think that, um, the thing I've been telling people is I, I totally get for real, like, despite all the things I've, I've written, which are skeptical towards Bigfoot, I still do absolutely accept that people have had experiences and in cases they've had absolutely terrifying life-changing experiences. I'm to- I'm fully on board with that. I fully understand that. And I think that if you try and marry that with the fact that there isn't the physical evidence that supports the existence of a, a giant predatory North American hominin, which, you know, has all the amazing uh, traits that 
our modern view of Bigfoot Sasquatch is, you know, like associated with. Well, then what, how do you deal with that? I mean, I think that's why some people have gone down the like Ron Moorhead route and said it's some shape-shifting, you know, quantum entity, whatever that means. It doesn't really mean anything. But um, so long as you've got that, you are going to have a problem. And then finally, what you, you raise an excellent point. Why then don't we have sociologists, cultural anthropologists, psychologists like paying more attention to this? And I don't really know the answer to that because that's the sort of direction I've been pushing it in. It's like, even if this isn't pure zoology, even if it isn't, you know, primatology, zoology, you know, whatever, then surely this is something worthy of psychological analysis or sociocultural analysis. It's a fascinating phenomenon. And there basically don't seem to be enough people qualified in that area to start looking at this phenomenon and i think they did start doing that in like the 70s and 80s you know there's that book man like monsters on trial where Mm -hmm. you know quite a few of the papers in that are you know hedging sort of leaning in that direction people did think wow this is uh, I, I do think that they tend to the people that have tackled that tend to take it in a fairly uh, sort of unsympathetic direction i mean you know these cases where uh psychologists go to a bigfoot conference and they basically tell bigfoot researchers that they're all suffering from some kind of psychopathy or yeah. some i like i don't think that's helpful you're not going to get many people on board saying that are you but um i i, th- I kind of think it started then and it didn't really go anywhere and quite why that is I, I kind of get the impression that there might be like renewed interest in it, but the main thing just seems to be there aren't enough people that are actually studying that to really go somewhere with it. But I absolutely fully agree with you. It's like this is a rich field, whichever way it goes. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. The woo thing and uh, giving Sasquatches um, these non-physical attributes and abilities, um, in a way, uh, I, I've often thought, well, that's mental illness or maybe people had weird experiences because, you know, the universe is in a tremendously weird place and there's just Bigfoot isn't that weird, it seems. Uh, but uh, my friend um, and one of the best researchers I've ever met, a guy named Matt Pruitt, uh, is writing a book right now. And he's been doing research. Uh, he, of course, he thinks Sasquatches are physical animals and whatever else. But he's been doing research on what he calls phenomenology, mm-hmm. um, about how cultures who live in areas where large, charismatic animals live always attribute those large charismatic animals with these sort of supernatural abilities like tigers can turn invisible or shape shift or brown bears have this ability or that ability like and even tiger sharks you know amongst uh, the people of the south pacific they're attributed like a spiritual sort of um uh, well i'll say abilities again so in a way it would be strange if sasquatches if they were real animals which i of course i 
think is true. If that wasn't true of Sasquatches as well, um, the only difference is that nowadays it's the modern cultures as opposed to the the, the preliterate cultures. If we want to put a word on it, um, that's the modern cultures falling um, under the same the same spell, for lack of a better term, because uh, we're all humans. We're all the same species. It, it's there, There's something psychological, or I think, going on there. It would be strange if we didn't do that as a culture, at least some parts of our culture. What I've been telling people when asked about this um, recently is, I, I mean, basically, you know, I, I'm always going to repeat what, you, what you've said, but I, I, I do agree. Um, I think that if you have an experience um, that seems to relate to Bigfoot, then this is, if this animal is real, if people have seen something that, you know, conforms to, you know, what we think Bigfoot is like, then this animal is off the charts. This is like, you know, bears and tigers, Komodo dragons and crocodiles are all great, but Bigfoot is like, this is going to be one of the most (laughs) profoundly ridiculous animals um, alive today in terms of its, uh, you know, uh, prowess and abilities, running speed, you know, how dangerous it, p- it potentially is. Really? Um, I don't think they do anything that other animals can't do better. I think I think if you've got all that stuff jumbled into one animal in terms of its size, strength, intelligence, running speed, um, I mean, the, the, the modern view, I think, the identical view of Bigfoot that we've kind of compiled, you know, I mean... I, I do think this would have to be one of the most one of the most remarkable creatures there is. I, I can't agree with you I, because because I I get totally that all the things that are ascribed to Sasquatch. I mean, this is what Bindenagel made you know obvious in all of his books that basically everything described for it has been reported in you know known great apes. I think I think that's a really uh, compelling piece of support for the reality of Bigfoot. But the fact that you've got all these things in a creature that's remained so so cryptic. Um, where, where I'm going with this is, if you accept that view of Bigfoot that, that the community kind of like sort of has, and combine that with the fact that people haven't been able to confirm it as a real flesh and blood animal, to the to the you know satisfaction of as as I've said, you know the satisfaction of the majority of you know. Um, scientists and the majority of, of you know people. I mean, let's face it. You know, Bigfoot mm-hmm. still isn't like a culturally widespread sort of accepted thing. Then I think that has encouraged the lean towards um, the the woo. Um, yeah, which, uh, I would agree. Yeah. You know, a lot of these people that you're referring to with the woo, and I think Ron Moorhead might be one of them. And Ron's a friend. I, I, I love and adore Ron. I don't agree with him on Sasquatch, and we talk about that when I'm with him. Um, Tom Powell would be another one, for example. And all these people started out in what they call the flesh and blood path and then later ended up elsewhere under the woo guys um, or weird things happen and there's lights and, and telepathic, whatever, all that's kind of stuff. Um, I think some of it might be born out of frustration and kind of like, well, I would have figured something out by now. I've been doing this for so long. But I, I think that's, um, and I'm not faulting any individual, Tom or Ron or anybody else with this. I think it's a, it's a human characteristic to, to number one, underestimate them and, and what their strength and habits essentially, um, amount to, um, and also kind of overestimating our own species and what we're able to do. Cause I, I live in the woods of Oregon, of course, and I look out the, my window and, um, there's four or five, six people who live in my Valley where I live kind of a secluded homestead there. And I just look at the Valley walls and think all that is totally, completely unoccupied. 
And if what if they, that's where they choose to spend the time because if they are apes at the end of the day, because we're apes and no matter where they are on the hominin or hominoid, you know, gradient, that's them. They like that stuff. Um, mm. Yeah. So I think a lot of it, a lot of that woo stuff is born out of frustration of, I think I should have gotten more by now. Therefore, yeah. there must be something else going on that I can't explain. I, I I really like your point as well. That um, that this it's it's almost as if uh, you, you've heard the argument. I'm sure that um, when when people talk about um, you know religious belief, they always say that um, the the idea of there being like large creators, you know, godlike characters, that's kind of like hypothesis one. It's sort of inevitable that people would have started with a belief like that. And I think you could say, and and I'm not talking about religion now. I mean, you know, that's that's another that's another issue. But uh, you could say the same. Well, we can say exactly the same for big spectacular animals. That uh, yeah, even when we know they're real, absolutely they are imbued with all these you know almost supernatural qualities. So. It's that famous book, the the great the great soul of Siberia, that talks about Amur's uh, Siberian tigers, and um, they're they're um, given all these like remarkable sort of supernatural abilities. It's like, wait a minute, this is a known animal that's like there's no. I'm pretty sure we can say that Siberian tigers aren't shapeshifters and don't practice telepathy, so far as we know scientifically. And yet, you <laughs> and yet you have a really similar set of uh, you know claims for, pertaining to them as you as you do for for, for Bigfoot. So, yeah, when I was in Sumatra looking for the orang pendek, um, one of the things we got to do is we got to meet up with a tiger shaman um, who talked about tigers shapeshifting into humans and back and forth and how they can turn invisible. And I, I got to see it first hand and hear it directly through an interpreter from the shaman himself about all these supernatural abilities that the local Sumatran tigers apparently have that, you know, I'm sure that no zoologist on the planet would be happy to, you know, uh, confer, you know, to, to agree with. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so these things are out there. And even in modern days, uh, people still believe these sort of things. Um, yeah, people believe that, that, oh, I saw some birds fly overhead. That must be my, my grandma's spirit checking on me. And we, we, we are still such a I – I think that we, as, a, as a species, we look at ourselves, or at least a you know, modern you know, first world industrial species, like we, you know, in America, the UK and stuff. We look at ourselves and we think that we're so far removed from that kind of uh, thought process or ideals. And we're, we're simply not. Uh, I don't know what it is about us. I mean, it's, it's genetic. Maybe it's, I have no idea, uh, some cultural phenomenon. But we are still there. We are still living in this weird shadowy world, whether we all think that or not about ourselves. So it makes sense that these people um, choose to believe the um, paranormal aspects of Sasquatches. Um, I just wonder, like once once Sasquatches are proven academically to be real animals, which I think is an inevitability at this point, um, uh, what what will they all be saying then? I, I often wonder that. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to think about egg on one's face or anything like that. And maybe maybe I'm the one that'll have egg on my face, and maybe they do turn invisible and go in other dimensions, whatever that means. I just you know, I'm, I'm I'd be happy. To uh, lick the egg off of my face, if that were the case, I just don't think it's true. <laughs> uh, I often, I, I, I do often um, think about this. What, what would we, what, what would it be like if, if one of the great classic cryptids uh, was uh, was confirmed? And I mean, I think that 
you know, the list of cryptozoological superstars. So according to Bernard Hooferman's published a list in 1986, and it's like 140 creatures. You look at it today and it's like, no, no way. There's no way these are actually real, you know, things that we actually, they're not targets for cryptozoology today. The evidence for them, belief in them has mostly fallen away. But um, for creatures like uh, Sasquatch, it, it kind of hasn't, you know, that sort of, the idea they might one day be demonstrated to be real, is you know on the cards and if it happens what what will we say well i think it's um really interesting that um a huge percentage of uh the classic cryptids are hominids they are human-like apes of some kind now on the one hand um you know does this does this link to like i i do think this for me, this is quite important in terms of like the skeptical view of these of this subject because the thing that this, this links to back to what we were just saying about um, you know people's uh, belief in you know like a, a mystical spiritual dimension to the natural world is uh, for, for me one of the biggest problems about um, belief in not just not just Bigfoot but you know you go through the list of crypto hominids uh, throughout the world it's they're literally seen everywhere they are seen literally every every place i mean uh, as as you know even like here in the uk and you know western europe and so on people have claimed sightings of bigfoot type creatures i think that that's partly because people do require there to be a creature an imaginary creature that bridges the gap between us and the rest of nature i think that's kind of an unshakable part of the human condition and i i think that not necessarily in the case of Bigfoot, because I think Bigfoot's actually like one of the better supported, but for a lot of them, it really does kind of make it, um, you know, shaky. Com- combine it with the fact that, that people are, you know, automatically see the human shape. You know. Would that make it some something like a Jungian archetype, or what is some sort of cultural memory, or what what what, what is what's behind that? Do you think? Mm, uh, yeah, I think I think it's something simpler than that. I think it's the fact that we are just programmed to look for. Well, I think it's actually two things. Number one, we are programmed to look for the human shape. So if you see a tree in the darkness and it's at the right size and shape, you might think it's a person, just because we're always, you know, we're programmed to see other people. Like you know, a pareidolia people, sort of thing. It's, it's, right? it's totally pareidolia, that's right. And then the second thing is this kind of cultural need, which could be driven by the fact that, yeah, by na- by the, f- the very virtue of the fact that we're human, we see ourselves as distant, not distant, we, are, we see ourselves as distinct from, as different from the rest of nature. Like, even... I mean, obviously, you know, the whole idea, our, our whole ideas about, you know, exactly where we fit within the tree of life is a, is a, is a new thing. People have, so far as we know, you know, we have always regarded ourselves as somehow different from the other animals. Given that fact, then we also know, and when I say we, you know, I'm, I'm talking about us in our ancestral state, you know, how we used to live. Um, we, we know that we are part of nature. We have a connection with nature. We do all the things that all the other animals do and we need to eat and we need to hunt other animals and, you know, we need to drink from streams and, and whatever. But why why is there this difference between us and, our, and and nature? I mean, it's quite common for indigenous peoples to have 
uh, an idea about you know like other primates being our, our brothers or cousins. But I think even even the the most human like non humans are not sufficiently human like to properly fill that gap. So I think people have been inclined to imagine that there are people just like us, but they're hairier and they do live in the woods. I think that that mythical view is is all over the place, and in some ways that does weaken the support for the existence of these creatures you know if, if someone in you know anywhere in the world literally anywhere in the world let's let's just randomly say ecuador if they're in ecuador and they say i saw a hairy person it was just like you but it was covered in red hair and it lived in the forest they might already have that idea without them actually seeing uh you know a, a red-haired furry pe- person that really did live in the woods so i, I kind of think we've always got that to deal with that's just the, that's just the consequence of um of the human condition that, yeah, and seeing that did, ourselves everywhere right yeah yeah i mean and because yeah the the if people claim to see bigfoot or bigfoot type creatures in england scotland wales you know uh poland uh sweden uh, spain <laughs> uh, antarctica um hawaii all of which they have then i don't think that strengthens the 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 support for the existence of those creatures, I, I do think, I do think it, it weakens it. We've, that yeah. was a bit, yeah. That was a, but but the the complication, you know. There's, <laughs> I said I would struggle to know where to go with this. It's like, I I think that's in place. I think that is a thing, but I don't think that that derails the fact that there might still be such creatures. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of these places that you're mentioning, I think that the the. Uh, People do see – we see ourselves everywhere. I mean I hear every day somebody's in the shop telling me something about themselves but uh, accusing somebody else of it. You know, like that sort of thing. It's projection. It's pareidolia. It's seeing, living in a room full of mirrors, right? Um, but I think a lot of these places where people are seeing or claim to see these things, the UK is a good example or Hawaii is a fantastic example with the Minahuni. Um, I don't think Minahuni are real biological animals. Um, uh, I think that it's a cultural echo of the first and second migration of people who came to Hawaii. Um, the first people who uh, discovered Hawaii, um, they were of a smaller stature. They're more Indonesian um, in their in their genetics. And then later on, the larger um, I, I don't like the larger like South Pacificers, like uh, you know the more Samoan type, the larger people. Um, they showed up later, and there were all these, these small people living there. And Minahuni, when you translate it, actually is, is a small person, but also could be translated into a person of lesser social stature. And I think eventually they were either um, they, it, those two groups of people interbred, or the, the larger of the two, from what I was told when I was in Hawaii looking into this, um, they ate the smaller people. <laughs> so um, the, the, the whole Minahuni thing might be some sort of strange cultural echo through the last 1,200 years or so since this happened um, of that. And I've often – and the UK, it was an open question. As you know, we the, the find, or maybe you don't know, the Finding Bigfoot show went to the UK. Um, and I said, well, there's no Bigfoots in the UK. So, well, these people say there are. I said, all right, let's go to – let's you foot the bill. We'll go to the UK. Um, and, and I think that might be some sort of, again, cultural echo from mainland Europe of of not that long ago when things like Neanderthals or Denisovans or some other hominin group was still walking around coexisting with us. 
you know, because there are those uh, cathedrals and whatnot with depictions of hairy people. But I, what I found from historians when I was there, and I don't know everything. In fact, I know very little, and I take some sort of a solace in that. Um, the whole hairy man mythos came over and came over to the UK during the Normandy invasion. Um, so it kind of came with the culture at that time. Um, so again, I think that some of these things may be cultural echoes. Um, going back quite far in our in our sort of cultural memory um, of other, and here's, here's our next topic of conversation here, relict hominoids mm. that we uh, coexisted with over a period of time. Yeah, before, and, yeah, I, I, I do know the episode. I, I, I probably have watched too many episodes of your TV show. But <laughs> don't, don't hold it against me. <laughs> the, um, yeah, so the, the, the Woodwozer um, argument, and I'm uh, unfortunately quite familiar with Andy McGrath's um, <laughs> writings. Uh, I do mm-hmm. not agree with anything he says. But, um, uh, nice no, guy, just, though. No, no yeah. disrespect to Andy. He's a very nice guy. But you've what you've just done i don't mean to be at all rude in any way but you you've just uh, done the the rationalization that's very common in cryptozoology so it's it's common for us to you know hear about a a thing uh, a particular entity think well that kind of makes sense you know maybe it's as you've said you know maybe it's a cultural echo maybe it's a reference to something that we know from the fossil record or something and, and you know, you, you, I think you have to be very skeptical about that. Like, turn it around. It's like, well, it could be, but it also could totally not be. So, for all the places uh, where, for example, uh, you know, you were talking about the Minahuni of Hawaii. For all the places where people talk about, you know, people of small stature, there's a hundred other places where we have no reason to think that there was any. You know, there's no way there could be any anthropological or biological basis. Uh, to this um well that's a broad statement in itself and i i I feel ashamed for saying it but you know there's we must be careful that we don't necessarily it's the the commonest complaint from um cultural anthropologists and sociologists about cryptozoology is that cryptozoologists have have heard about legends and had have immediately rationalized them as flesh and blood creatures and that denies our our ability present across the whole of our species to just invent stuff we there's no doubt that people have invented stuff so for every one mystery creature that sounds absolutely plausible it's like yeah i can believe that that was a relict you know dwarf population of you know uh, a homo floresiensis or, or whatever for every one argument like that there's like for every one entity like that rather there's another 10 where it's like that does not link to anything people people yeah. made it couldn't that both up. be true though it, they could they totally could it's what makes this so fun it's like yeah yeah i just i'm just wary about us going down the track of thinking that sounds reasonable and the Another very common thing in in cryptozoological writings is people basically picking evidence in order to you know support pet hypotheses. So um, I'm not going to say any more on that because I'm worried I'll just talk for too long about it. But basically, you know, people have bolstered specific hypotheses and then you know they come up with a particular idea. I think that all the sea monster sightings of the north. East Pacific pertaining to this kind of creature, and then you hear any report from the same area, you you know compile it, you 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 include it in that category. Whereas if you actually look at them in detail, it's like there's no reason to connect those at all. That's people seeing all kinds of different, uh, you know, 
people people um, having all kinds of different you know encounters with all kinds of different things and then later on authors have compiled them together and i do think we probably are guilty of that in all of these cases if you go through like all of the orang pendex sightings you know for example they don't all describe the same kind of creature that people are talking about all, all kinds of sort of small human type creatures more hominid type animals they aren't always describing the same thing that you would hope you you would hear if they really were describing an unknown you know species i just think we have to keep that kind of stuff in mind and we often don't no uh as far as descriptions go of the orang pendek or anything else really would it be fair um to look at them and and, and just assume that they're going to be outliers in any set of data and, and kind of take the bell curve approach. If the majority of the descriptions match, do you think that that is any sort of foundation that we can move forward from or it, do they all need to be consistent? If you so so this is a question of sample size, and if you had so to get a bell curve, like I'm no statistician, but how many how many good sightings would you need? I would you're supposed to need like a minimum fifty sixty, and when we talk about cryptid cases, I mean again Bigfoot is an outlier because there are so many, but for most of these, the actual good sightings are are very 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 low, and um, yeah, I I don't know that we have enough to really. Uh, there is, there is also, of course, the tendency to assume that when people describe something, and and another tangent, and just to touch on this, is of course it's often us Westerner type people talking to people from totally different cultures, where you know every even the way that you describe things and how you you know even the basic most basic descriptive terms are often being used in a different way. Um, we are often kind of like picking and choosing the things that we think match with our kind of expectation. But uh, I forget where I was going with that. Sorry. <laughs> no, I think that's, an, that's a really valid, as a very important point, though, because culture is, 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 in a way, it's kind of like a set of clothing you put on. But in another way, it's the kind of water a fish is swimming in, you know, and you're the fish. You just don't even see it. it. It literally dictates everything about you, your expectations, how you act, how you think, how you speak, how you interpret the world around you. Um, and I don't think a lot of people um, take any time to kind of meta-think about what culture is and how that affects one's interpretation of existence and reality in general. So when you, And I, I try to keep that in mind because we get a lot of indigenous people, a lot of Native Americans going through the museum um, from Warm Springs or whatever other local reservations that they're traveling to or from. And um, when I speak to these people, I'm always very interested in, in their worldview and their perception of things as well. And I realize that if, if I hear something that sounds starkly different than my own, I love that because it's a reminder of my own biases and my own interpretations and the water in which I am swimming in, so to speak. Um, and when we talk to other people of other cultures, when I went to Sumatra, for example, um, not only is there a language barrier from a very real sense between Indonesian and English, but there's also this other barrier and other filter in between their experience and my own that one has to get through. And, um, and to bring that back home, when we speak to witnesses um, as, a, as a research community, if we want to call it that, when we speak to witnesses, there are so many biases and filters between what they observed and what I interpret. 
Um, how good an observer are they? Are what what kind of culture do they come from? Are they going to frame this in a, like a Judeo Christian context where they're looking at Nephilim or something? Or, or, or and how good of a, of a, um, a communicator are they? And, and then it comes to my side. How well am I listening? What am I paying attention to? Am I distracted at the time? And all those other filters apply to me as well. Um, there's so many things between the actual observation and what the researcher like myself would take in. A lot of those are cultural. A lot of those are abilities, a lot of observational abilities, um, and, and so on. So I, I really like that point because that's something that a lot of observers, I'm sorry, a lot of uh, researchers fail to recognize um, that you're only hearing words. You're not actually seeing the animal. Don't believe the witness because most witnesses don't even understand the difference between observation and interpretation. So you kind of take it all with a grain of salt, which is why I think that that sample size that you mentioned earlier is so significant. Um, hundreds and hundreds of reports, I think, are necessary to start getting a pretty decent picture of what we're, what we're going after, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I kind of feel it's one of the most uninteresting things about cryptozoology, but the, the um, just because of my, my own bias, and you know, I'm sure you'd say the same, but it, it just in terms of how people actually perform as eyewitnesses, we, mm-hmm. we tend to assume as people interested in cryptozoology that an eyewitness account, you know, if you read an eyewitness account, you kind of think automatically that you're hearing a description of a photo. But of course, of course you're not. There is this, you know, substantial amount of research done on the way memory works and the fact that you know we're not we're not accurate uh, describers of of what we've seen but then of course you know that is that's the thing that i feel constantly in the corner of the room in any discussion about cryptozoology and i know what the counter argument to it is you know the fact that well it doesn't that's all very well and good but that doesn't change that you have a bunch of people that have claimed to see the same thing so what we have to remember uh, if we go to uh, you know places where we're not necessarily familiar with the with the culture or even with the what the creature's meant to be like, we have to remember that you mustn't start out in your mind with a view of what the creature is and then basically describe get people to describe things that match your you know vision of what it's like. You see this all the time in people that go to tropical Africa in quest of Makila Mabembe and uh, you know New Guinea in search of the Ropen and these kinds of animals. They're clearly looking for people. Uh, they're clearly looking for specific traits that match their view of what the creature's like already. And uh, 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 that is that's not good for anyone, I think. So. Um, yeah, you know, I complain all the time about people who write me um, an email or tell me a story and they want my opinion, but actually what they want is my affirmation. Um, and if I give them any pushback at all on it, they get very angry at me, very generally speaking. I guess I'm perhaps not very gentle with them. I don't know. <laughs> and I, and we're, I think we do the same thing as you were just saying, you know, going to um, Africa to look for Michele Babembe. We're looking for certain traits. We're looking for affirmation. So we're as guilty as they are essentially. Yeah, um, I, you uh, you started to talk about um, uh, f- fossil um, hominids, and yeah, we, yeah. we veered away from that, which I'm sure you'd rather not. Uh, oh no, no I, I would love to speak about yeah. that. Absolutely, you're absolutely correct. And you know, and, and along those lines, even this week, I'm sure you caught, uh, I'm sure you saw the article. I don't know if you had a chance to read it or not about the um, the Laetoli prints that were actually discovered before the original, like the, the more famous Laetoli prints um, from site. Uh, the, the famous ones, I think, are Site G, and then the, but apparently Site A, um, there were some footprints that were thought 
perhaps to be from a bear of some sort for a long time. And now they've taken a second look at it. And, and now they're thinking, oh, this is probably some sort of hominin of some sort and a different, perhaps a different species than the hominin who left the footprints at Laetoli Site G, if I'm correct about that Site G thing. Um, yeah. Which I think is fascinating and very pertinent to our conversation here, um, I think, because I am of the idea that Sasquatch, you've probably heard me say it before if you listen to this podcast at all, that I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that Sasquatches are a hominin, um, specifically probably something along the lines of a robust australopithecine, a paranthropus. Um, and, and when I looked at the article, I said, well, that looks like a pretty decent Sasquatch print. It has that sort of fan-shaped thing that I'm always looking for. And then I'm reading further and it says, oh yeah, it, it has an inline gait. There's very little straddle. I said, well, where have I heard that before? Um, of course, it's a Sasquatch trait. And the more I read about it and thinking, oh, well, how hilarious. To me, it's funny. It's like they're they're discovering or they're hypothesizing, I should say, about this hominin. And it has all these gait traits um, of a Sasquatch. And I, and I just kind of laughed about things because one of the um, interesting things that I've picked up over the years, and this happens to come from Dr. Meldrum. He pointed out, some, a, a scientist said this, and I don't remember who it was, um, a, an interesting test of a hypothesis is how well it predicts future discoveries in the same field. Um, and he applies that to the Patterson-Gimlin film in a number of ways. But I thought this was another excellent op- another um, example of that. Um, what are mm. your thoughts, if any? Yeah, yeah, um, I, I, yeah. I, I, I haven't. You're right. I haven't read the paper, but I'm aware of it. I've seen news articles. I think that what's happened in paleoanthropology um, over the past. I mean, I think kind of probably since the late 1990s does in some ways have quite a few parallels to the cryptozoological um, idea about uh, crypto hominids and. Like I can remember, I was born in the seventies, and I and I remember growing up thinking that well, you know, that the main view of um, hominin evolution, or hom- they, at the time they were all just called hominids, of course, the idea that there were like four species and basically straight line evolution, one turned into another one and went extinct, and then that turned into another and that one extinct. Yeah, where single species hypothesis? Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah, and uh, when um, people like Ivan Sanderson developed, um, you know. Ideas about how if you if you're really gonna uh, accept the idea that um, the um, mystery Bigfoot type creatures seen all around the world, if you're gonna accept the idea that they are that they're real unknown animals, we're clearly not seeing one species. We're clearly seeing a whole bunch of them. We're we're seeing like you know a diversity, you know, a couple in e- on each continent maybe, and. Um, when that was proposed, that would have been, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, that would have seemed pretty radical. And I don't think it was taken very seriously by uh, those uh, sort of zoologists who, you know, uh, who read it. But um, as we've discovered, uh, like an increasingly bushy hominin family tree, you know, at any one time, there's, there's, I don't know, 10 to 15 contemporaneous species uh, in Africa and Asia, mostly. Um, yeah, it's like, wow, this this really was a, a really interestingly diverse world with numerous different adaptations, numerous different heights and facial shapes and, you know, habitat preferences and so on. It's, it's really interesting that the cryptozoological view is in some ways paralleling it so i whether that's a whether that's a strength whether that's you know supports the cryptozoological view i mean uh, you know quite a few people have said it lauren coleman has been saying it for a long time but um one of the things that i find really interesting about all the cryptozoological claims is um if 
the story that the fossil record is showing us is the same story as the one is if it's you know directly linked to the story of Yeren Almas Orang Pendek uh, Bigfoot etc then um the the fossil record clearly isn't telling us the full story because it's the fossil record for hominins is um with with the with the exception of you know ancient North Americans, um, which don't go back that far, not deep into the Pleistocene, you don't have a story of these animals you know moving throughout um, Siberia, say, and then moving across the Bering Land Bridge. You don't have an American story. You don't have a European story that extends beyond about thirty thousand years ago, because that's when Neanderthals kind of go extinct. Um, you don't have an Australasian story. You do have, you know, these, obviously you have like diminutive animals, Floresiensis and whatnot in Indonesia. Uh, Homo Floresiensis, by the way, is not a member of Homo. I know they're still calling it that name, but it's an Australopithecine grade animal. It's yeah, an animal. which, which yeah. actually bolsters uh, my, my, uh, um, my model quite well. Because m- the problem with my model, be- Sasquatch, is being an Australopithecine or a Paranthropus, is that there's no sign of radiation out of Africa until Homo floresiensis showed up. Now, now, now along those lines, uh, you're familiar with Homo luzonensis from the Philippines. Um, yep. uh, are, um, does Homo luzonensis fall under that same category as being um, archaic, for lack of a better term, like Homo floresiensis does? Or does it show more modern traits, as far as you know? As far as I know, it, it does not fall into the same... It doesn't have the same limb proportions. There's a whole bunch of things that make floresiensis kind of of the australopithecine grade and so far as i know that's not true for luzonensis so i haven't yeah. i haven't read a lot on luzonensis at, at so far likewise i don't think there's much to read but yeah I, yeah i think i think you're right yeah uh, there was interestingly there 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 was back in the 50s and 60s supposed evidence for an australopithecine in tropical asia it was called australopithecus prometheus because it was supposedly associated with um evidence for you know hearths for, for, for fire um those fossils were later re-identified but there is a history of people claiming to find australopithecines in in asia so you know I, uh, I just bought a collection of journal articles and it arrived this week so i haven't got into it yet and i bought it solely based on one claim that uh, uh, this anthropologist and that forgive me for not knowing his name i'm terrible at names was claiming some sort uh, he was hypothesizing some sort of um asian dispersal of early hominins um at the time and maybe maybe this is the same gentleman that you're speaking of with the uh, australopithecus prometheus huh. um very interesting uh, I'll, I'll try to i'll get into that article hopefully this week and if I find anything interesting I will email it to you to kind of catch you up on some stuff um, yeah what he says but it's an older article though so it's from the 80s so who knows if it's pertinent anymore or not so right that's the stuff it was published in Journal of Human Evolution and it would have been in the 80s but um, yeah if 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 this is the, the same story if the fossils do link up to the uh, you know the modern uh, claimed creatures then yeah we're missing a huge bunch of uh, a substantial amount of the story. We're missing this, you know, like American side of the story. And, well, and, being a paleontologist in general, that's true of any lineage, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is something that um, is is discussed a lot. Uh, how complete is the fossil record? And this is something that there is no one tidy answer to this. Uh, um, it varies from group to group. 
so I, you really have to try and restrict it because otherwise, if, you know, broad brush generalizations. I mean, yeah, mammals have a great fossil record, so therefore, therefore, you couldn't have unknown, you know, um, American uh, hominins. You know, you, would be a potential broad brush answer, but it wouldn't be satisfactory because you know, as soon as you start thinking just of just of great apes or of any other large group of animals, you easily have like you know hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years, when members of a lineage are just like lacking entirely. So, um, you know, great apes in particular, you know this, I actually was listening to you talking about it (laughs) quite recently. Yeah, gorillas and chimps have terrible fossil records. I got hilarious joke fossil records. It's like they deliberately excluded themselves from the fossil record as best as best they could. Um, orangutans have a pretty good fossil record, which is kind of surprising given that they are associated with mostly tropical forest. But um, I mean, gorillas are supposed to be like 10 million years old and there's one claimed fossil and it's not even definitely a gorilla. It's actually an animal that was described as a hominin um Sahel Anthropus, the two my specimen from Chad. Some experts argue that that is actually an ancient gorilla. But other than that, you got nothing. And then, yeah, chimps, you got a couple of teeth. So I I do think this would be a case where it seems surprising, but it's certainly not unprecedented that these animals these animals are so rare. I mean, when I have discussed it with with other paleontologists, you know, if if Bigfoot's real, their their common retort is, well, why don't we have it at you know Rancho La Brea or <laughs> should be yeah, should yeah. be all over the place in that the very rich Pleistocene record of um uh you know not Pleistocene North America and it's like yeah maybe it would you know maybe it wouldn't I mean has there um, been an effort made um and I. I because we aren't going to find anything unless we're looking. I mean, I, obviously, we do find some things when we're not looking sometimes on accident. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. the, like, I'll, I'll use, for example, the type specimen of uh, Homo erectus, Java Man. Um, it was discovered in Southeast Asia of all places, um, which is surprising in a way. Um, but if no one's looking for it throughout, say, India and, in, um, you know, Pakistan, or not yeah, I mean, Pakistan, sure, but like Russia and places like that, what are the chances of finding it? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that the argument has been made that uh, th- there's certainly quite a lot of hominin fossils, obviously from uh, you know eastern eastern Asia, but um, they are you know we think we know what kind of animals they are from. They're from you know Homo erectus type uh, animals. If you find any hominin remains in North America, they are uh, Homo sapiens. Um, now. I don't think that the let's say that Bigfoot is real. I don't think it is uh, Homo sapiens. I mean, I, I'm, no, I'm familiar no. with the argument from some corners that that is a, a, a thing on the cars. I don't think that does. Yeah, well, that does. Work I'll, out, I'll but, say it if you if you don't want to. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I think you know the the things that have been identified from the North American record and South American record as Homo sapiens. They are Homo sapiens. They're not misidentified uh, Bigfoots. But, yeah, you're um, far too kind, Darren. I want to point that. <laughs> <laughs> it's that UK politeness coming through. Like, like people but, already hate me. I'll say it. It's ridiculous. Okay, fair enough. Good. Yeah. Um, but w- yeah, when it comes to the Asian stuff, I mean, um, I mean, I kind of think that what we think we understand about okay, so Denisovans are currently 
total black box. We haven't got a clue what those animals were really like. I mean, we think they were very similar to us, probably in general appearance, and also to Neanderthals, you know, given that we've got evidence for Neanderthal, Homo sapiens, Denisovan, you know, crossover. Um, th- th- those all the all of those animals probably did, you know, look look very much like us, and I think that moves them away from being, um, you know, potential candidates for crypto hominids. But get outside of that little group, and once you're talking about uh, erectus type animals, I mean, mm, I don't know. I mean, I I have personally always been more pr- probably. I think Grover Krantz is probably to blame for this, but I've I've kind of always lent towards the idea that if uh, Sasquatch and Almas and, you know, Yerens and whatnot, Metes, if they are real things, then they probably are members of the Pongine branch of the hominid family tree, which um, that's one of those things that I really hope is true, but I've got absolutely <laughs> no way of backing up. I, I don't, I'm not leaning towards the Gigantopithecus um, um theory that you know uh Krantz yeah. was uh, yeah. there's a bunch of reasons for i don't think gigantopithecus was what Krantz thought it was Krantz thought it was more of a you know hominin like animal but um well the the, fact- you know the thing that bothers me about gigano theory is that well first of all we know almost nothing about them you know whatever teeth and jaws can say and that's that and that's really about it but um you know she uh, now that the what is it the proteonics did i say that word right the the, the yep. protein studies um squarely place it in the line between Shivapithecus and orangutans. Mm. Well, neither of those animals have brow ridges, and but Sasquatches are uniformly reported brow. And of course, that could have arisen separately. I totally understand that. But I don't know. There's little things like that kind of bother me. And, um, the, and sure, Giganos, right place, right time, right size. I get it. That's a reasonable starting point. Um, but w- we lack so much about them, which is why I think, which is why I'm not really on that boat, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, but whereas um, the the Australopithecine thing, it was actually through the reading Ian Tattersall, who I'm sure you're a very very well aware of. Um, Ian Tattersall was describing um, in one of his books, I think it was Masters of the Planet. I was reading, if I remember correctly, he, uh, a lot of it is about Australopithecines and how they lived and how they probably looked and behaved and all these sort of things. And um, he was talk- commenting about their gait and how that had to do with their pelvic structure about how uh, Australopithecines' pelvises um, face upwards as opposed to humans that are their pelvises face forward. Um, well, and you start looking at some of these purported Sasquatch photographs, and there's a couple that are unpublished, by the way, I want to point out too. Um, and they have, Sasquatches seem to have a slightly pear-shaped body about them, including Patty, I might add, from Patterson-Gimlin film. Her hips are a good two or three inches wider than her chest is. Um, and that could be from a pelvic standpoint. And then when you start looking at the cranial shape um, with the zygomatic arches and the possible sagittal crest and whatnot, all those things are clearly present in the robust Australopithecines, and, uh, which is why I think that that's a reasonable place to put a couple bucks down on a bet as well, especially if they did radiate out of Africa head northwards, which would, of course, be a requirement for crossing the land bridge. And then Bergman's rule took over, you know, and, you know, a five-foot paranthropus, give it a, give it 800,000 years, and it could easily be a seven-and-a-half-foot Sasquatch. If if I were to uh, have to favor a, uh, a given identity, it would it would be the same one. It would be robust Australopithecines. Yeah, paranthropines. Mm-hmm, so, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and of course, as you know, it's an idea with some history. I mean, it goes back to, I think, some of the Russian researchers um, specifically were drawing, um, you know, like superimposing 
paranthropine skulls over you know blown up images of patty and yeah. find yeah look the you know the position of the sagittal crest and whatnot does does match so it's it's a really it's a really intriguing idea and um yeah f- for me part of the appeal of of this of the whole field is the yeah the, the, what, what we call speculative zoology uh, yeah which, which is fun at the very least i think yeah at the very least it's a lot of fun yeah yeah i mean d- d- yeah it's not meant to be in any way an insult or a slight it's like uh like if I always say that even if there's absolutely, you know, nothing like air quotes real, you know, nothing tangible at the bottom of cryptozoology, then uh, certainly in terms of like how it's been, you know, how things have, have worked in the community, you know, what, what ideas people have explored and uh, yeah, the sort of um, uh, the the psychological basis for like the ideas they come up with that, that alone again is, is fascinating and, and worthy of study and, and the amount and the, the, um, how common speculative zoology has been, uh, how influential it's been in, in cryptozoology is not an insignificant, it's a non-trivial point. It's like been there right from the start. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. So um, we've spent, spent a lot of our time so far, to, you know, focusing on the Sasquatch thing, which is kind of my gig, and I can totally see why we do that. Um, as far as the breadth of other animals in cryptozoology, um, as we kind of close up our podcast here, um, what other cryptids do you think that there just maybe something there? Like some of them are clearly you can just write off right away, no big deal. But some of them may have a, some sort of real biological thing behind it. Um, are, are any? What are your thoughts there? Yeah. Um, so I've yeah I've written about you know the pretty wide breadth of uh, cryptids and exactly exactly what we include within the subject is, is itself you know a, a topic of debate but um i will say for example that the uh, so-called mystery big cats that are reported from many places um you know are legit so um in north america i there are good reasons for thinking that people really are seeing uh, you know, pumas in places where they're supposedly not officially present, or the the infamous black panthers. You know, I I I do think that some of those are actually real. What they actually are, you know, are they large jaguarundis? Are they melanistic jaguars or or melanistic pumas? Um, I do think there's something there here in the UK. You know, our top of the list of our mystery um, animals. Uh, is out of place, uh, so-called mystery big cats, and I'm absolutely convinced that they're a reality. You know, uh, I've seen it, one of those. I don't know if you knew that or not, but I've actually seen a black cat here in America. Um, um, whereabouts? It, it was in Illinois, southern Illinois, and it was clearly a melanistic mountain lion because wow. even though it was dark, dark gray in color, like very, very dark, I thought it was black, but upon it was on the side of the road and about 2.30 in the morning and whatever, and I thought it was initially a um, you know, a German shepherd, but, uh, it was trotting towards the road that it started moving parallel. So I had about five or maybe six, seven second look at this thing. Um, it was a cat. It was a, it was a mountain lion as far as I could tell. And the reason I say that is because mountain lions have a black cap on the end of their tail and also the tips of their ears. And even though this was very, very dark, I thought it was black at first, I could differentiate the, the difference between the coat and the tips of its ears and the tail. 
So that, mm-hmm. those were even blacker. So it must have been a dark, dark charcoal gray or something like that. But I did see one of those at one t- at one point. So that is compelling. Have you written that up? Um, yeah, yeah. I've, 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 I believe I've written it up. I have to dig through my notes. But yeah, I tell the story quite a fair amount too. When I say written up, I mean, have you made efforts to get it published anyway? No, no, I have not. Yeah, no. yeah. A woman did inter- uh, wrote a book about black cats and interviewed me about it, but um, yeah, so she published it. But okay, oh, that's, oh, at least it's on record. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I, no, it's I okay. Find it. Yeah. Oh, so that, let me let me just use that to make a real brief point. Oft, so when I say if you written it up, you know, um, oftentimes in th- this again is something that's kind of not practiced, I think, sufficiently in a lot of cryptozoology. If you let's say a naturalist. Um, so, someone who's like a member of a you know naturalist society or something you know a, a professor you know qualifications if they saw something they were absolutely sure they were confident enough to be able to okay so it was unfortunate they weren't able to get a photo as is normally the case when you see animals very, very briefly but they could at least do a sketch or something then they would write like a sort of a one page you know technical paper I saw this animal, it was in this specific location, if you're able to give it, then they would try and get it published um, in a, you know, a peer-reviewed uh, journal. Um, you've got more than enough things to do. I'm not trying to give you more work. but uh, No, but I'm always willing to up my game. And, and I try to do that not only for myself, but also as a model for other Bigfooters, trying, always trying to improve myself. Because people look at me like I'm the expert and say, no, man, I'm a learner just like everybody else is. Yeah. I, I always am uh, accepting uh, of encouragement and, um, you know, and, and being pointed in the right direction. Because that, to me, sounds compelling enough that that should be in the technical mammalogical literature. And I, I tried getting the same thing done here in the UK with Mystery Big Cats because um, there's... Uh, I mean, the, the reason part of the reason that I think the... Um, air quotes, mystery big cats are a reality in the USA is because I know of cases where quite sceptical, you know, qualified field naturalists, zoologists saw the, saw the, the same thing, basically, you know, what you've just described. And it's, there's this was not just a regular puma seen in the shadows or seen due to poor illumination. It was legitimately like a, a truly like dark, you know, dark coated animal. And it's like, if, if that's, that's such a, a, I mean, (laughs) on the one hand, it's not such a bold claim because, of course, we we know there's so many of these accounts. On the other, you know, to actually be able to actually state it in print and be quite confident about it is uh, is a big deal. So um, I I tried here in the UK to get the uh, British big cat um, enthusiasts to there's there's various like amateur groups here. Try to get them to better publish um, their stuff, which includes. There's some really poor, you know, photos and bits of film, um, and there's some vocalizations which are, you know, always subject to debate. But there's tracks which have been cast and photographed and which are definitive and unarguable. There are hairs which have been analysed both um, in terms of gross morphology under the microscope and also have been subjected subjected to genetic analysis and have been identified as those of non-native cats. And there's loads of um, bite marked uh, bones you know broken bones and even you know animals that like deer and sheep that have been killed in characteristically uh, big cat ways and i'm like you've got all this data this is a compelling case you need to like actually compile it get it published in technical papers which is really hard to do it's really hard for 
I'm not a professional scientist. I'm like, make my living in other ways. I, I publish technical papers like for fun on the side. It is not fun. It's a horrible job. I hate it. It's a really, it's really hard. So for someone who has no experience of like how the technical literature works or how you do actually compile technical papers, I know it's, I know it's hard. And I was never able to find the time to do it. And even today, with like decades of this data kicking around, it hasn't been properly published with the exception of one paper that I published with um, Max Blake and colleagues a couple of years ago where we found a uh, taxiderm, uh, probably Canada Canada lynx in mm. a museum collection, an animal that was... Um, that was shot here in in the southwest of, of England, and it's like if that that is in like 1904 or something. It's like that animal was shot in the wild in the UK. Uh, we did have lynxes here prehistorically, but well, or, or into historic times, but not for hundreds of years. So finding a shot one in the countryside is uh, kind of a big deal, and uh, you know you get data like that, you absolutely should publish it. So, so yeah, big cats out of place, big cats. I am. Um, are very confident are a thing and there is more on them due to be published um hopefully well probably next year actually Mm -hmm. so um and if the other thing um this is going back to you asking me what i think is you know probably legit well uh we haven't touched on marine stuff and i'll just say briefly that we've got every reason to think that there are more large marine animals to be discovered there are at least a few more um, the question is whether any of the uh, so-called sea monsters that have been reported by witnesses, whether they kind of, you know, will turn out to be um, a new species. And at the moment, I don't know, because uh, um, I'm not that confident that, that sea monsters, as reported by eyewitnesses, do actually pertain to unknown species. But at the same time, I think there are unknown species to find, so at least some of the descriptions... Well, it's a um, tough thing to begin with because most of the actual animal is hidden underwater no matter <laughs> what you see. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I will say there's been a – it seems a flurry of new beaked whale discoveries over the last decade or two. Yeah, there's actually been – I mean, within the last two years, there's been like four or five new whale species, two of which are beaked whales, two of which are rorquals, one of which is a dolphin. So – um yeah there's always always there's like you know one or two a year um new whales new sharks new particularly big rays new large cephalopods so there's always this background you know uptick on the graph um there have been a couple of studies done uh, by, by myself and other people, Charles Paxton, Michael Woodley, various others, we've published these papers looking at discovery rates over time of large marine animals. And they all indicate that the the graph, the curve of the graph still has got a little bit to go before it's, you know, tails off, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. stops stops growing. Um, the, the kind of, the sort of dirty secret to this, though, is that all of these creatures aren't really... You know, when we talk about new marine animals, we still tend to, our poster children are still the coelacanth, nineteen thirty-six, I think, and the megamouth, nineteen seventy-six. Now, nineteen seventy-six, that's now a long, long time ago. <laughs> that's decades and decades ago. That's not that's not a recent discovery anymore, really. Yeah. The um and 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 I would say the megamouth was a radically new animal. I mean, no one had any clue that, that there are no. I have checked. There are no descriptions in the you know 
sea monster mysteries of the sea type literature where people describe an animal of that kind there's nothing like it at all it's totally new so these new um new whales as in like 2021 whales and sharks they're unfortunately they're not like that they're new populations that we've recognized as new thanks to new genetic analyses sure not, like, yeah. like the species of orangutan that was discovered in 2017 we already yeah. knew they were there just they're genetically different Exactly, dead right, yeah, yeah. And in fact, people have been saying for years beforehand that the Tapanuli orangutan, by the way, this is the distinct form, it's just, you know, our views on what we call our speciesometer has, uh, you know, has varied over the years. And now, and right now, the fashion is to name that as a new species, but it wouldn't have been 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so there, there's definitely new marine stuff to find. It's just, will do any of these sea monster stories many of which are just so cool (laughs) do do any of them actually describe these new animals and unfortunately i'm doubtful of that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no what about some rediscovery things like uh, um, thylacines for example or um, i think that'd probably be the poster child right there thylacines yeah Um, yeah. you think there's any chance those things might be kicking around somewhere well, there's there's a there's always a, this is a, another kind of foundational cryptozoological thing. There's a, there's a big difference between whether you think something is like absolutely legitimately plausible, and whether there's actually any, any evidence to support it. So I've never been to Tasmania, but I'm reliably told that that Tasmania is unspoiled enough and rugged enough and wild enough that in theory, if thylacines have stuck around, you know, if they managed to persist beyond the, the 1930s, you know, we've got reason for thinking that they were still alive in the, in the 60s. And if you think, and that, that's based on... Um, that's based on field evidence where... Because, you know, when the last one in captivity died in 1936, they didn't know that was the last one. They knew they were rare, but they still thought, don't worry, if we need another one for a zoo, we can go out in the world and catch it. So you've got all these, like, formal scientific papers where people in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s are saying the thylacine is very rare. It's one of the rarest mammals around, but it's just clinging on. So if in the, and there's an actual report from, I think it's 1967, where the Zoological Society of London reports the finding of what they regard as a thylacine den. And I, so far as I know, it's legit. I mean, it's a it, like, it's actual field evidence for the persistence of thylacines a couple of decades after their official extinction. You know, pinning down when an extinction happens is, you know, pretty much impossible you never really know that an animal's 100 gone mm-hmm. um it's, it's again it's one of these numbers games um so so like on the theory side of things i can kind of buy that yeah maybe thylacines persisted until like you know the late 20th century but on the actual evidence side of things what good evidence is there for it there's um you know if you go through uh, helian cropper did it really well in there out of the shadows book and um is it Ian Malcolm's Thylacines, Bunyips, and Bigfoots? Is is this there's some really good Australia's got like a pretty cool little cryptozoological community. They do a good job of cataloging and, and interpreting a lot of this stuff. And there's hardly any reports that you read it and think, oh, that comes from a, a good source and is like a reliable um, you know, that's a, that sounds to me like a good solid report. Instead, they're all really dodgy. They're all like 
you know, people saw something running across the road in the middle of the night or something. There's been this um, long-standing argument as to whether there are feral foxes in Tasmania. Apparently, there are not. So all of the and and you you know, there's this um, claim about thylacines being present on the Australian mainland. Yes. So yeah, that arose like mostly to do with a single researcher. That's mostly the result of Rex Gilroy's writings mm-hmm. and i won't start talking about him but he's not a particularly trustworthy researcher um he yeah, i've seen some of his bigfoot or yowie data and i have seen no reason to look further <laughs> say no more um yeah totally agree with you on that um yeah the the australian stuff is like it should be dismissed out of hand it's almost certainly people like seeing and misinterpreting foxes it's not clear that's the case for tasmania but there isn't strong support, basically, is where I'm going with this. So. Are you familiar with a Gary Opit? Uh, I am, yes, yes. And Gary Opit's weird, bushy-tailed, stripy creature seen in um, Queensland. Do you know the one I'm thinking of? I think I do, because uh, I had a great conversation with Gary. I was very impressed with him in a lot of ways. And he said he saw something that doesn't. he has no idea what it is. And when when Gary says something like that, that kind of means something, I think. Yeah, so um, Gary's creature, I think this is from Cape York Peninsula, Queensland. Um, It's always included in books in the section about the so-called Queensland tiger, which is not to be confused with the thylacine. It's often called the marsupial tiger or, you know, Tassie tiger. It's a different creature. Mm -hmm. The... um, yeah, the Queensland tiger was supposedly a cat-shaped striped marsupial. Uh, Gary's creature is included in uh, you know chap- the chapter on on that, but it's clearly something else. It's it's not meant to be this like big cat-like tiger creature. It's nothing to do with thylacines, and it, his drawing looks pretty good, and he's given a pretty good description of what he saw. It doesn't match numbats or quolls or you know t- or any of the possible. It's got a kind of marsupial flavor to it, the way it yeah. looks and what he describes. But it's like, if that's real, <laughs> if that's uh-huh. legit, it looks plausible enough for you to think that that's got to be something else that's just not known. But uh, yeah, so I, I'm quite impressed with that. But I really would like there to be um, other reports of exactly the same thing. And I'm, I'm not aware of them. So Yeah, I found Gary to be fascinating. I spent, I had an opportunity to spend an afternoon with him one day. And um, he's impossible to go hiking with. You know, we're, we're trying to get somewhere literally a thousand yards away. And it, it took forever because every six or seven steps, he goes, oh, look at this. And he bends down and picks up a plant and tells you the natural history of it, and <laughs> how it was used by the indigenous people and what animals use it. And they say, okay, well, we got to get going. And 10 steps later, he does the same thing. He's just such yeah. a fountain of information. And what a what a delightful human being. So Yeah, best kind of naturalist. But also, yeah, I, I get, I get that would be frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> well, I learned so much. We didn't get a lot of filming done, but I learned so much from him. So Some of the Yowie stuff is so so spookily weird it's it's like of of all the of all the creatures that you know i would regard as if i were to arrange mystery creatures you know cryptids on a sort of scale the yao would be you know towards the very very uh, unlikely to be true end of the scale and yet you do have these um accounts and even photos you know thermal images and so on from places like the blue mountains where it's like 
I just can't really explain that. I don't know what yeah, that, that is. Yeah, that new thermal stuff from this year was quite impressive. It's yeah, very it was quite odd. impressive. Very odd. Yeah, because yeah. some of the other footage, you know, it's not much to look at, honestly. You know, the Piper film, et cetera. But, uh, but that new stuff is pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. And I work a lot with thermal imagers. So, I mean, it probably means a little bit more to me than your average Joe. Um, but I'm pretty impressed with that stuff. Um, yeah, I was actually pretty impressed with Australia in general when I went, and I didn't even—I wasn't even aware that they reported the, they report two kinds of hom, hominoids there, a big one and a small one. And I thought, yeah. oh, well, they're juveniles, of course. And they go, no, 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 these are small ones. They max out at like four or five feet tall. Yeah, it's all. You know, Healy and Cropper's uh, book, the, the Yowie, because they've got yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- their last it's an excellent chapters. book. Yeah. I thought I'd read it carefully, but I apparently did not. Because after I came <laughs> back from Australia, I, I went and grabbed it and reread it. I go, oh, it was right here in front of me this yeah. entire time. It's a good book. Well, Darren, we're, we're just about out of time here, and I want to thank you so much for coming on. And I, I just found the conversation to be informative and, and just fun. I, I love being a science nerd. I mean, you're a scientist, but I'm a science nerd. So I really enjoy kind of playing in the big leagues and having conversations with people who know far more than I do because I love to learn more than anything else. And I just so appreciate you setting aside a little bit of time because you're on a different continent. It's not always easy to get together with people for a podcast. And I just, I, I know this isn't exactly easy and it's late where you are. So again, thank you so much. I'm sorry Bobo couldn't be here. And I, I just absolutely enjoyed our conversation. It was great. Thanks so much. Yeah, real fun to talk to you. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much, Darren. And, I, and uh, hopefully I can speak to you soon about something, some amazing piece of evidence that I have that I need your input on. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> All right, Darren, you take it easy. Cheers. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, all right, Squatch Gateers, there you have it. Um, Darren Nash from the UK, um, science writer and paleo, paleozoologist. Check out his podcast he does with John Conway. It's called the Tetrapod Zoology uh, Podcast. He has a blog, too. You can read it on tetzoo.com. I initially became acquainted with Darren over Twitter, but uh, I read his book. It's called Hunting Monsters, Cryptozoology and the Reality Behind the Myths, where he kind of goes through and um, says, well, this evidence isn't good enough. This evidence isn't good enough. Um, and check out check out his writing. His writing is, is fantastic. It is well-researched. He is, he's not one of these skeptics or scoftics, as I call them, that is, that is not well acquainted with the evidence. You, he, he drops the important names. He, he is critical of the evidence that is put out there. And I think as a community who is advocating for scientific acceptance of whatever our sacred cow is, Bigfoot or whatever it is, um, we have to pay attention to the skeptics and especially the scientifically qualified skeptics because that is the bar that we all have to rise to. We can't sit in our laurels and complain that the scientists are ignoring all of this if we are not doing a good enough job. And so read the skeptical literature um, and just realize that that's what we have to climb. Those are the heights to which we have to climb. So again, check out his book if you can. Um, Check out his writing. He's on Twitter. He's quite active over there. There's always something fun and interesting happening in paleontology that he's talking about. Um, And man, I I had really had a good time with with this conversation. And I hope you also enjoyed listening to it, despite the fact that Bobo was not here. Um, But he's not here. Hopefully he'll be back next week and be done with his obligations for a little while. And until then, everybody, keep it swatchy, as Bobo would say. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. 
You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond. That's an N in the middle. And tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 